now. Uh, the issue of asylum seekers coming to Ireland has been continuing to fill space in newspapers all this week with a the group of 14 men, and then there were less, and two boys, and now it's one boy, uh, found in a trailer on a ferry bound for Rosslare, thankfully all alive. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, they had applied for asylum and were thought to be entering into the direct provision system. And on Friday, uh, Jennifer Bray of the Irish Times, who of course is with us today as part of the panel, had a story that the Department of Justice has issued tender documents to find accommodation for 5,500 asylum seekers around the country with a budget of £320 a year. Now, we're joined in studio by the Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Refugee Council. I was going to go to you first on this, Jennifer, to go back over what it is the Department of Justice is doing um, before we got into the nitty-gritty of it. But I suppose on the day that's in it, Nick Henderson, I have to ask you, what happened to the Kurdish men? Yeah, it seems that they, uh, from the report in the Sunday Times at least, that... uh around eight, I think, men have left uh, the centre in Dublin at which they were being accommodated. Uh, That's the reports that we have, at least, um, and that they may have tried to travel to the UK. Um, First of all, it was good to hear that they were given access to the asylum procedure in Ireland over the weekend. That's really important. Um, And let's not forget, uh, in 2001... um, Eight people died in Wexford in a, in a lorry, including oh, two, yeah, sure. We've uh, seen tragedies. Two, two young children. Yeah. So they were given access to the asylum procedure, but a small number seemed to have moved on. Um, that We may get more reports on that during the day. When you say access to the asylum procedure, what does that mean? That means that they would have come from Wexford to Dublin. They would be accommodated because it was the weekend. They'd probably be accommodated over the weekend. And either tomorrow morning, Monday, they'd go to the International Protection Office uh, on Mount Street in Dublin and they would begin the asylum procedure. Uh, and that would. And how does that all work? Are there trans people there to translate, transport, all of that? How yeah. does that work? So they would be, if they needed an interpreter, and many do, they would uh, have access to one. They would have a short preliminary interview uh, with staff at the International Protect- Protection Office, which would ask them some basic questions about their name, nationality, and why they are claiming asylum. Uh, they would be accommodated, or at least they should be accommodated, in Belseskin, which is the reception centre in North Dublin. Uh, and then they would be probably uh, dispersed to a direct provision centre somewhere else in the country. One of the phenomenons that we've witnessed in the last year, though, is that a, there's been a huge increase in emergency accommodation. So hotels and B&Bs um, in various shapes and right. sizes across the country. There's now 1,500 people uh, in such accommodation, which is, uh, in our experience, very problematic. So they could be in that sort of, right. uh, type of accommodation. And would there be a policy, say, if they were all Kurdish, which I understand they were, yeah. um, to keep them together? In other words, not to disperse them, you go here and you go there, because, like, for any emigrant or immigrant, mm. you like to have contact with your own. I mean, I don't mean in ghettos, but like in the United States or in London, Irish people took support from one another. That may be a policy consideration by the government, but in reality, at the moment, uh, we have very few uh, beds in direct provision. Direct provision is a system uh, is full. 
and hence our reliance on emergency accommodation. So as we see it on a day-to-day -day basis, the Department of Justice are accommodating people where there is a, a vacancy, where there's a bed, so they may not be kept together. Uh, in terms of why the, 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 sh the smaller group moved on, and we don't know this for sure, and we don't even know that they've gone to the UK, but um, there may be family there that they have, uh, and right. it's important to emphasise yeah. as well that and this is a, a misconception about refugee law often that somebody must claim asylum in the first country in which they are in or the first safe the, country. The, the Dublin Convention. Well, that's, that Dublin Convention is slightly different. The, there's nothing in the Refugee Convention, which is a 1951 document which we've got in Irish law that says that somebody should claim asylum in the first safe country. Did, did uh, the Dublin regulation does, though, allow member states to send people back to the first country of asylum. But the, the, somebody's asylum claim shouldn't, in our opinion, uh, be treated any differently just because they didn't claim asylum in that first country. Right, OK. Listen, can I go back to what you were writing about, um, Jennifer, during the week? Yeah. Um, Tell me what the department is doing in this now. Sure. So the, the Secretary General of the Department of Justice wrote to the Public Accounts Committee earlier this month and he was talking about basically the direct provision system and, and the capacity. Um, he pointed out that there is 1,531 uh, asylum seekers currently in emergency accommodations in hotels, guest houses, um, uh, because of that lack of space that you mentioned in the direct provision system. And he said that he's highly aware that it's a, an unsatisfactory situation and it can only be short term. So in order to find additional space in the system and find new centres, as he put it in the letter, um, the department were going to do this regional procurement process. So this started last December. And what it basically involved was a series of tenders going out uh, through the public procurement service to find these new centres. Um, I dug down into the, the tenders. There are eight of them. They cover pretty much the entire country. Um, and they are looking for f space for five and a half thousand spaces. When you say they pretty well cover the country, do you know what towns or villages they're near? I know the counties where, and I know the numbers that, that are need to be accommodated in those counties, yeah. but not the towns or villages. And in his letter, the Secretary General said that that's commercially sensitive at the moment, but where there are new centres, there will be a series of community engagement. I should also point out that the departments say those five and a half thousand places they're tendering for, they're not all new places. Um, and they're saying that some of the existing centres will have to tender in the future so you'll have a mix of new centres the current ones um, and there's also a series a, a, an attempt to improve the standards in existing centres so a lot of them will have to be refurbished Right. Um, so that's where they're at at the moment they're going to analyse those bids in, in the next few weeks and you will find um, like I said some of the existing centres they, they're looking for to house a minimum Mm. Uh, of 50 people. Yeah, because they do point out in the tenders that it is the minimum because they, there has been a massive increase this year in the number of uh, asylum applications that they've received and it's very, very hard to tell ahead of time what those figures will be in the coming years. Um, so they do say a minimum. Each centre will have to provi uh, provide a minimum of 50 spaces and from the documents it shows that it is under that independent living model. When I say that, it's a system whereby basically whereby families can cook their own meals and, and look after themselves if they want to. And these centres will have to have that. There are also rules around the amount of people who can be in a certain room because we've seen criticism in the past of uh, people being in rooms with people they didn't know with only a curtain for privacy. Now, I will say the government completely deny any claim that the direct provision system is inhumane. But the accounts that we've heard over the last few years, and um, some of them are pretty harrowing. Um, and the problem is, well, part of the problem is the housing crisis. There, it, you know, of course, yeah. There's, there isn't that space to, uh, to build. One other thing I would say is, 
when there is talk politically of the direct provision system and the future of it, that is where the spotlight is. What is the future of the direct provision system? Now, those documents that I talk about, yeah. uh, they did put a price on the different contracts and altogether it's around 324 million. And the contracts last usually between two years uh, for the most of them. Yeah. And in one instance in Dublin, I think, uh, it's four years. So it's 320 million. I don't think anybody would dispute, well, Maybe some people would, but I personally think that there should be a proper quality of accommodation uh, for asylum seekers. Um, so I don't know if it, I wouldn't dispute the money, but it is a huge amount of money at a time when the government are yeah. under pressure to abolish yeah. the system. Yeah, the Jennifer's work in this is, Nick, is, is yeah. strong, and yeah. uh, but it's worth mentioning this. This does go back to the controllers and auditors general's criticism of how the government procured the direct provision system for the last twenty years. That's a report from twenty sixteen, and it criticised strongly the fact that uh, the Department of Justice uh, obtained accommodation through expressions of interest, uh, which were lacking uh, and didn't meet the requirements of the EU, EU procurement. Um, so, so, sorry, just run that past me so, again. Yeah, so it, it, direct provision is delivered primarily by private yes. businesses. Yeah. And uh, up, and, up until now, really, the government has obtained that accommodation by engaging with private businesses. Who have the premises. Who have the premises, and that could be an old hotel, a building that they flipped for, for this purpose. They've procured uh, that accommodation using expressions of interest published in newspapers. That's been very problematic to, from our perspective because there's no transparency. So what this process that Jennifer has written about does, on the one hand, is good because it uh, establishes transparency transparency around yeah. the process. You or I or anybody can log on to eTenders, the government's procurement notice website, and see these notices uh, in, in quite substantial detail. Right. However, and You'd this is... You preferred them run by NGOs. Uh, not necessarily NGOs, oh, no. but I think the starting point is 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 important. Well, at least housing non-profit housing bodies would be our ultimate desire. But it's important that we consider the criticism of direct provision as a system, political parties across the spectrum, um, ourselves as an organisation, but probably most importantly, uh, the Ombudsman for Children has criticised it. The Human Rights Commission has said that it's not in the best interest of children. Bernardos have said it, it um, is no place for children, and the former special rapporteur for children Geoffrey Shannon said it should be abolished Okay have you any in, in your neck of the woods Ashling? We do we have one in Lister Varna um, and Dr Harty spoke about it during the week um, when he was saying you know there was a lot of public anxiety initially um, but it has worked out very well and the local community are really embracing um, the, yeah. the, the people um, just just to I suppose um, follow on just to point on it that I picked up and reading the papers during the week I think there's three out of the eight regional contracts have been awarded yes. and again you know we talk about the cost but there's been massive cost overruns even in that like the middle Lands one, it was estimated 11 million, and the final contract awarded is now 27.6 million. Ah, the no. southeast, so, it was yeah, estimated at 11. at 11, and it went to and the final contract awarded was worth 27.6 million. And <coughs> um, the southeast, it was estimated at 28 million, the final contract awarded was 36.9 million. Now, the third one has actually come in a little bit lower, surprisingly. The midwest, it was estimated at 15.7, and it's come in at 12 million. 
Um, so even, you know, there is substantial costs associated with it, but they're even, you know, the first yeah. three contracts that have been awarded have gone way over that. But what I will say is when I wrote the original piece, that 324 million I talk about actually includes those higher amounts. But obviously, if you go beyond that, that's only three of the eight contracts. The remaining ones, obviously, there was one that was a few million under budget. Uh, it would point towards... a overruns might be well yeah it's over budget basically so if the rest of them go along that way you could be talking maybe closer to 400 million and in our experience there's actually probably few bidders who are interested in doing this type of work and that's why we've criticised this procurement process um, it, it, requesting 50 or more people we would say is uh, perpetuating congregated settings congregate uh, institutional living, when we've engaged with... Non what would you like? We would uh, see owned or accommodation uh, for a temporary basis during the person's asylum claim to be delivered by non-profit housing bodies uh, to allow for privacy and dignity while somebody has their asylum claim. Isn't and there a kind of a... I suppose like a perfect storm that if you take... Um, people coming into the country, while in principle there might be great welcome for them, uh, they say, well, why don't we house our own people? Yeah, and I think it's important to emphasise that the housing crisis that we have is nothing to do with immigrants. Or of it's course. nothing to do with refugees. Yeah. It's due to long-term mismanagement of housing. Uh, and as we've spoken about already, these are quite substantial budgets that we're talking about. So you, let's use that money... There's a clear budget line for it, but let's use it in a different way right. and let's use it in a, through a non-profit model. Yeah. There's been huge expenditure on direct provision, but unfortunately it's gone to the pockets of uh, businesses. There's been no reinvestment back in the back into the to the state or from a public policy perspective. So there is another way of doing it, and this procurement process could allow for that or could have allowed for that. But the fact that it's 50 or more people risks perpetuating congregated settings. Uh, you're also required to have accommodation ready to go within 16 weeks. And when, again, when we've engaged with housing bodies, that's a very short time yeah. to turn around accommodation. Yeah. Uh, and... So it's, it's a problematic process, and I know as well that the government have set up an advisory group. Uh, Catherine Day, the commissioner, is chairing that. Yes. Um, and we've made a submission to that uh, group saying, requesting that the terms of reference be amended yep. to include an analysis of potential alternatives yeah. to DP. When they were starting with Listoon, Listoon Varna, um, was there communication with the local community or was it sprung upon them as a surprise? Um, I don't think there was initially and I think there was was there a press release we'll say during the week and like I must say as well Aidan O'Driscoll is kind of t tasked with this this job and he's formerly from the Department of Agriculture and would have had dealings with him in that and he was exceptionally strong in his role in the Department of Agriculture so you'd hope he'd he'd be doing the best he is but he did in the press release that came out during the week they did say that there definitely would be more engagement when they do um when they do do tender or when the contracts are finally awarded I think just another point just to worth mentioning was that Jennifer you you mentioned we'll say that the number of applications for asylum this year has been you know it's been quite high and um it's the highest level since 2008 but the numbers are 3762 mm. When yeah. you think in the grand Turkey scheme has taken in Sam. four million. Yeah. By, compar yeah. by yes, comparison Claire. with most other European countries, many other European countries, particularly southern European countries, this is a drop in the ocean, the numbers we're seeking to accommodate here. And I think um, um, 
the instinct of most Irish people would be to welcome these people and to ensure that they're given good accommodation. Not luxurious accommodation, but good accommodation. And that should be part of the, the way in which we reach out to these people running from very, very distressing. I don't know if I agree with that, to be honest. I think it would be nice to think that everybody, that the vast majority of people feel that. And maybe the majority of people do, but I joined a Facebook group yesterday, um, which is set up expressly to... um, I guess, protest at uh, different counties where new centres might open. And I spent an hour last night going through the comments and and the different posts, incredible number of posts over a 24-hour period. Some of the comments were just, I mean, I couldn't believe it. Some of them were just overtly racist and it was actually quite depressing. And I think there is more to this and there's the, the some opposition is absolutely valid if you're worried about if you have a small town and you have the exact same number of asylum seekers coming in of course you're going to worry about services mm-hmm. and that's where you need a programme of engagement but there is an underbelly here which is quite vicious and I think quite nasty and goes under the radar a lot of the time I've no doubt there is that's why this debate needs to be led um, and it needs to be led from the top and it needs to be led at every level of society and, and, and uh, I think Charlie Flanagan has been do- doing a very good job he in has. relation to our articulating a principle position on this and to appeal to the better angels of the Irish people. Yeah, Danica, you want to come in? Well, we've, we've never done this particularly well. I, I remember my grandmother telling me about the Hungarian refugees who came to Limerick in 1956 when there was a, a overthrow of the government and, and a lot of people had to leave and our foreign ministry at the time rather ostentatiously said we would house hundreds of them and what happened in the end is that uh, we got ourselves redesignated as a, as a place of transition not of destination because the refugees actually didn't want to stay here. Many of them wanted to go on to Canada eventually. Some even went back to Hungary can you imagine? I mean, you're fleeing, you're fleeing kind of a revolutionary terror and you, you have to go back again. We had refugees staying with us in Newmark and Fergus, actually, in the 1980s from Somalia uh, for over a year. I think they aroused some interest in Newmark and Fergus in the 1980s. But they ultimately went to the UK as well. And part of me all, sometimes wonders um, if, if the situation is deliberately made to be intolerable, that, you know, it's almost like hoping that they will go elsewhere. Well, it's, the government have said as such in relation to the right, right to work uh, for nearly 20 years that mm-hmm. people seeking asylum could not work. And it took uh, a high court, then a court of appeal, and then a Supreme, Supreme court, court challenge mm-hmm. uh, that was opposed at each court by the government yeah. before Justice Donald O'Donnell finally recognised that yeah. people in the asylum process have, an, uh, have a constitutional right to work. I think it's worth emphasising that there in our experience, it has been local communities that have offered people a welcome, mm. often in spite of uh, the, the issues and problems around direct provision. Um, and communities in Uttarad or Ackle or Ballinamore perhaps should uh, talk to their communities just down the road where there has been a direct provision. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with that. Paddy O'Gorman, uh, O'Gorman had a very interesting radio piece in the Shauna Work show during the week. He went to uh, the Clondalkin Towers Hotel in Dublin. He was doing a piece on uh, direct provision. And the people he spoke to uh, who were being supported there, by and large, they were positive about their experience in terms of the welcome that they got from people yeah. on the street from, from ordinary people. I heard a very similar report this morning on News Talk. They're going to do a lot on it this week. And the, the the person that was doing the report said it came as a great surprise to him because he was presumed it was all dreadful. We said people not he wasn't saying it was wonderful, but you know Yeah, the the I think the general message from the people that Paddy O'Gorman spoke to was that totally without regard to the actual centre itself, the welcome and the the attitude of people that they met locally was generally positive, was generally warm. And sometimes I do think we are swayed by some that there is now I mean Jennifer mentioned Facebook. Facebook and YouTube in particular are being used 
by a really mm. small fringe uh, uh, section of society and groups to try and whip up um, antipathy but, to, toward yeah. asylum seekers, toward towards immigrants. Mm. I actually think that it, it that is not representative of mm. how most people feel, and this is not just a kind of a Dubliner, you know, uh, you know, wet talking. liberal, yeah, wet liberal talking. When you actually talk firsthand, to first person to to people as Paddy O'Gorman did. It's not as bad a story as as we think. The, the second point I would make, and I would probably be in a small minority in Ireland in this, I actually think immigration is good mm-hmm. for the long-term health yeah. of a country. I mean, if you think, in famine in Ireland, we had roughly the same population as England. Roughly the same, right? England now has 65 million people. We're still below five. Now, if you ask the person on the street, do you think we should go to... 7 million, 8 million, 10 million, most of them will, will, will pause or recoil from that. I happen to be uh, someone who thinks that is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. If, if we went to that, I also think we should plan for that. We need to build infrastructure. I mean, what we're talking about, the numbers here for us are tiny, tiny. three, three and a half mm-hmm. thousand people. Yeah. That is not a major issue. Germany took, how many Syrians did Germany uh, 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 take? It was up to the million. Up to the million. Yeah. And, and they have made that work for their country. I know that there is some political uh, unrest there, particularly in the East, but Germany is, now, is an industrial powerhouse. It understands that it needs people. Right. Japan is in an absolute mess. I was in Japan this time last mm. year. They won't let immigrants in. So the population's dying. Yeah. So, I mean, the demographics are definitely a factor, but um, and there's no doubt that the, the numbers are very small and, there's, and this country has easily absorbed an awful lot of immigration from the European Union, from Poland and Lithuania and countries like that, where people have been welcomed and have contributed and formed communities. And yeah. I, I was suggesting the Poles should have their own team in the All-Ireland. I mean, they're really, in, in the numbers that they have here, they're, you know, the size of counties and so on. Um, it, I was watching Ireland's fittest family was on mm-hmm. yesterday. And there was uh, one family, now I didn't catch the name because I had the sound down, mm-hmm. with extremely dark black skin mm. absolutely lashing in with the other families I was delighted to see it Well immigration is improving the country in my view and uh, yeah. we should welcome it Can I just also, it may seem a long way away from where we are here as, as a country but the situation in the Mediterranean continues to be dire Yeah. Um, and let's pause and reflect uh, on the role of the Irish Navy that rescued 18,000 people um, but for yeah. uh, their actions, they would be they drowned, would be they would drowned. be dead. Yeah. Um, I, I struggle to think of a more significant humanitarian act that Ireland has t- undertaken. Yes, but if I could be a little bit cynical about this, as indeed some of the Italians are, <laughs> you know, we rescued, we, I say collectively, as, as I, and then we dropped them Indeed. off in in Italy. We, that didn't, was we cr- didn't bring them to COVID. No, and, no. I, and I don't think we. if that was the case, it wouldn't have happened. Um, but they did save lives. We brought a delegation of search and rescue organisations to Ireland two weeks ago. Uh, uh, a lady called Aoife Nimurku, who's a nurse for MSF Ireland, Médecins yeah. Sans Frontières, has done incredible work and witnessed terrible things in Libya and in the Mediterranean. We also had with us a young man who had travelled from Sudan through Libya, had made the crossing, travelled up through Italy to Calais and was one of the young people who 
was relocated from Calais to uh, Ireland. And uh, the president, Michael D. Higgins, had a reception for, for the delegation. And in quite an incredible moment, the, this young man who has traveled um, and, and witnessed such uh, terrible things, has been persecuted in his country, had a very meaningful and long conversation with the president uh, at the Aris. Yeah. So Ireland does do some things well. Um, the Mediterranean are not in the in the in the. Yeah, uh, mind the, you, the Navy Fine are not voted. Indeed, and that was a that was a, a shameful vote and in the, in I, the European Parliament. Indeed, and I struggled to. I, I just don't know how that could be uh, explained. For there was some statements around the fact that information would be have to be transferred to to other bodies or other organisations. But saving lives isn't a grey area. We either do it or we don't. Yeah, we have to okay. get beyond them and to him and her. Talk about individuals, individuals. and individual stories. Yeah, like that that one that you have just told us. Uh, Nick, thank you very, very much indeed for that. That was Nick Henderson, CEO of the Irish Refugee Council, and we'll take a break. Podcast the Marion Finucane Show at rte.ie slash radio.